0: stories, big guests, the big
1: picture. Afternoons with Rob Brickenridge, weekdays, 1230 to 3, 770 CHQR. All right, welcome back. Rob Breckenridge. with you here on this Friday afternoon. A few other things we'll get to in our time remaining here today, but I want to turn our attention to what unfolded two years ago this month in Nova Scotia. Over 13 hours, 22 people were murdered at the hands of Gabriel wartman And still to this day, there's a lot of questions about how and why this happened. Why he wasn't stopped sooner. Questions around the RCMP's handling of this, both as it happened and in the aftermath. Has the RCMP been transparent about what happened? Or what they even knew about the gunmen before this all happened? There's a public inquiry underway that will hopefully provide some answers on all of this. Uh, Some of the latest testimony of this public inquiry reveals that there are at least 44 people that had some close calls with this gunman, uh, cross paths with the shooter during this massacre. Like this could have been a hell of a lot worse than it was. So Canadians should be demanding answers. I'm not sure if we've got those answers yet. Someone who's played an important role in helping us understand what happened through his investigative journalism has written a new book about. What is the deadliest killing spree in Canadian history? It is called 22 Murders, Investigating the Massacres, Cover-Up, and Obstacles to Justice in Nova Scotia. Joining us on the line is the author of this book, the author of several other books, investigative journalist Paul Polango. Joining us on the line here this afternoon. Paul, good to have you with us. Welcome back hey, to the program.
0: glad to be back, Rob.
1: Uh, let me get your thoughts on, on what we've seen with the uh, public inquiry so far. Are you optimistic that, that this will help Canadians understand what happened? What have you made of it so far?
0: uh not really i i mean i think the you know my skepticism about it is well known yeah. and uh there was a letter to the editor in the halifax chronicle herald like two or three days ago you could look it up um a qc uh, queens council uh, you know a, a veteran lawyer wrote to the paper saying that it's it's a fiasco it's you know it's not getting to the truth it's not designed to get to the truth it's an embarrassment and uh you know, what they've done is they've they've uh essentially done a review. They they've put out tens of thousands of pages of so called evidence, which is basically uh interviews with people, throwing them out there, you have to sort through them and occasionally calling witnesses, but nobody there's no adversarial process. Uh it's trauma informed so they don't want anyone traumatized by this and reliving their their tensions but unfortunately the government and the police are hiding behind this and not telling the truth about what happened and 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 the truth is coming up bit by bit by bit and and the reason i wrote the book rob like early in the cycle was to put as much of the story on the record while this inquiry was going on because i suspected they were going to do what they did And I thought I'd take a very un-Canadian approach. I'd actually tell an interesting story in an interesting way so people don't fall asleep in the middle of it.
1: (laughs) Right. You know, it's interesting, though, because you've written books about the RCMP before. You've written books about crime before. You've been doing this a long time. But, you know, your own connection to the story, as I understand it, you know, you moved to Nova Scotia uh, basically to live a quieter life and and sort of find yourself now at the center of this incredibly important and, and tragic story.
0: Well, it's crazy because it's true. Like I wrote my last book in 2008 and the RCMP did everything to make me look like I was didn't know what I was talking about. You know, the RCMP veterans association going around the country saying all kinds of bad things about me. And nobody in Canada really wants to hear stories about the RCMP. There're too many people who who who, you know, have fond memories of the musical ride and the, and that's how they judge the RCMP. But I've known and I've read all the reports over the years about how dysfunctional and unsustainable this force is. Yeah. And when I came to Nova Scotia, I started working, you know, we started a business as glass artists and that's what I've been doing for 20 years. And then this happened and I recognized that journalists were not covering, covering the story, the, the politics of the story, sort of the, the wokeism, not only in, in government, but in journalism and, and in society itself, was affecting the way the story was being told. And nobody really wanted to tell the story. And there was COVID, and no one was coming uh, to Nova Scotia to cover this horrible story. And then I took yeah. it upon myself. I said, somebody's got to tell the story. And, you know, I, didn't, I wanted to help other reporters, but they didn't want my help, so I ended up doing it all myself.
1: I mean, right away, though, there were questions about the handling of all of this. Why it took so long to notify the public uh, about uh, Gabriel Wartman and what the RCMP knew when they knew it, why local police detachments weren't informed. So right out of the gate, there were some questions about the handling of this. But what, to you, were some of the initial red flags here?
0: Well, their their entire response was not what police would normally do in that situation. And it was quite clear, like on the first day, there was something fundamentally wrong with what they did. And actually, it's funny that we're talking today because I've just posted a story in Frank Magazine in Halifax, which will probably be in the mainstream papers in the next couple of days. Employment and Social Development Canada, who, who enforced the labor code, have just mounted 18 charges against the Mounties that I found out about this today. Over this, these very things about the disorganization, the lack of communication, all the crazy things that were going on they've sort of put this down on paper, and it it's inexplicable, but it's predictable at the same time, Rob, because if you look at you know I said previous reports saying the force is unsustainable in its present form, you know they can't draw enough manpower to 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 finance or, or to man or woman <laughs> the uh, uh contract policing jobs i mean they're they're down there their their recruitments are down fifty percent. A third of the new recruits drop out. They they're, they're just understaffed, and meanwhile, their promotion system—and I've recognized this and written about this in the past—is is a plague on the force. People are being promoted who are not qualified to be uh, senior police officers. I mean, this is a, a police force that was waiting to have a disaster, and what happened in Nova Scotia was that disaster.
1: So you've got uh, the the official delegate by the head of compliance and enforcement. Uh, that finds that the basically the Canada Labour Code has been violated in the handling of this. So you've got uh, three separate violations noted here, all surrounding the events of April 18th and 19th, mm-hmm. 2020. So how significant is this?
0: Well, it's, it's something the RCMP has feared, because the last time they came up against uh, the ESDC was in Moncton when uh, three K- Mounties were murdered in Moncton in 2014, and the ESDC came along and said there was no proper training. They, di- they didn't they did implement any of the recommendations from either previous uh, Mounty murders in Mayorthorpe <clears throat> and Spiritwood, Saskatchewan. And so new recommendations were made for Moncton, and they were fined $550,000. At the time, the ESDC said, if you don't do this, people can go to jail. Well, guess what? They didn't do it. lot The recommendations were not followed through. Like They had a recommendation in Moncton that every Mountie should be carbine trained. That didn't happen. They didn't do that. There were recommendations that they have night vision. None of that happened. They didn't equip anyone with night vision. And the communication systems were a mess. None of that was fixed. And no one did anything about it. Uh, And so when these officers ended up in, in Portapique, at night with a maniac, they couldn't see each other. They didn't know who were policemen, who were not policemen. They had no GPS systems. It, it's just like one thing after the other. And there's like 18 of those in this, in these, uh, filings today.
1: I mean, you mentioned Mayor Thorpe. And I think, you know, part of maybe the the public fondness or affinity for the RCMP as a force is recognizing, you know, the frontline officers and those who have fallen in in the line of duty. And I think that's where that, that affinity you alluded to comes from. But what you're describing is an organization that's not just failing at protecting the public, but failing at protecting its own members.
0: I've said that all along, Rob. I think we talked about this yeah. years ago. I said the RCMP is oh, yeah. a danger yeah. to the public and a danger to its own members. I'm not an anti police guy. I'm a pro police guy. Right. But the police have to be accountable. Right now in the contract positions, you know, in the provinces outside of Ontario and Quebec, the provinces have virtually no control over the R C M P. That's what's happened in Nova Scotia. The premier has basically said, Well, they're federal police. They're not. They're paid by the province. They operate under Provincial Police Act. But you cannot appoint anyone, uh, or, or, or the, the province has no say over who does what in the RCMP. And an example of that is a story that I published yesterday or the day before about a new uh, assistant commissioner was uh, appointed in September to come to Nova Scotia. He didn't come. Uh, they, they didn't announce it. He, he turned down the job for one reason or the other. and But the province has no say over who comes in there. And But what they're paying through the nose for this service for the RCMP. It's not the way policing should work.
1: So let's talk about Gabriel Wortman. And, you know, a big part of this story has been obviously not just the, the response in, in tracking down Gabriel Wortman and not just how he met his demise, uh, but even early on. Was this guy on their radar at all? And you've done some reporting on that. What do we know about Gabriel Wortman, or what should the police have known about Gabriel Wortman?
0: Well, he was he was an out of control, uh, very clever. Uh, he was a denturist, you know, putting teeth, uh, false teeth into people's mouths. But. He was involved in criminality for well over 20 years. Uh, he had ties to criminal organizations uh, in in Nova Scotia. He likely had ties to bikers. He was smuggling things over the borders. Um, he was a, sort of a... A real Jekyll and Hyde kind of character, and and I get into that in some detail in the book because Mm -hmm. one of the things I talk about, you know, the whole purpose of the book is the obstacles to justice in Nova Scotia. Well, one of the obstacles was the the media, the mainstream media's refusal to a name him because they said, oh, the Prime Minister Trudeau had said in his first uh, press conference, don't don't glorify his infamy. Well, what happened is. They didn't talk about him, they didn't talk about his girlfriend, didn't name them, so the story sort of disappeared, and the RCMP and the government was able to hide behind this and hide details. Um, That's not the way the media is supposed to work. It's not supposed to be politically correct. And what I do in the book is point out this kind of journalism in detail. What happened while I was trying to tell the story, while I was being vilified, I was pointing out what the other media were doing and not doing. And that's part of the story because they wouldn't even talk about Wirtman, because Prime Minister Trudeau said, "Don't, don't, don't allow that to happen." In my book, there's great detail about Wertman and who he is and what he did, and some of it is really disgusting. But it's part of the story for people to understand what happened.
1: Right, and you know, part of it is look, it's it's one thing when you know the RCMP doesn't want certain things to come to light, uh, so it's, it's lying by omission. But there have been some pretty blatant lies about what unfolded that weekend. Uh, that's been contradicted by nine one one tapes that emerged. Contradicted now by by testimony of this public inquiry. So you know, we we seem to have, I think, at this point, objective proof that not only has the RCMP been been silent about important aspects, Canadians have been lied to.
0: Oh, absolutely. That they said, you know, the the, the original story was. Uh, where we went on this 13.5 hour rampage and, and, uh, we couldn't catch him. He was so clever, et cetera, et cetera. But what we find out now is that the RCMP never really got, never got in front of him. That certain, some RCMP officers actually avoided him and literally ran away. I mean, one, one, uh, passed him on the Sunday morning on Highway 4 and, uh, drove for an extra kilometer and a half to find, as he said, a safe place to turn around as a senior policeman told me after reading that testimony, he has lights and sirens. If he had turned around, he would have been able to put pressure on Wortman, and Wortman wouldn't have killed the last five people. But he got away and killed the last five people because of Mountie, essentially chickened out. Uh, and that's sort of the story all the way along. And then then the capture of him, Rob, is... They said, oh, they shot him after a policeman accidentally ran into him. But at Frank Magazine, we obtained the gas station tape showing how he was shot. And it doesn't fit the narrative of the RCMP or of CERT, the uh, police watchdog, which said, oh, an incident happened. That's not reflected in the tapes, but they're doubling down because there's something else obviously going on here that they don't want us to know about.
1: Well, no one's going to shed any tears over Gabriel Wortman, but it's an important question. I mean, was he essentially executed.
0: Well, it looks like he was executed. If you look at the tapes, and don't just, don't just read the stories in the newspapers, if you look at the tapes, it doesn't jibe with the, the story. And, uh, yeah, Wortman was a bad guy, but we don't know his motivation. There seemed to be no attempt to arrest him. And there are suggestions that much of what he did, dressing up as a Mountie, driving around in a replica police car, was to get back at the Mounties. So what was he getting back over, you know? If that's the case, I mean, he he had no criminal record per se of minor assault charge and very few run-ins with the RCMP. Why did he do this? And we'll never get to, you know, we don't have the chance right now to to find out. And his common-law wife of 19 years has been treated as a victim by the RCMP. And they did none of the forensic kind of investigation on her that you would expect in that kind of case when she was supposedly the last person to see him.
1: You know, as you said a few moments ago, um, you know, it didn't need to be this bad. Um, but at the same time, in a way, we're lucky it wasn't worse. So, you know, the testimony we're hearing at this public inquiry there's at least 44 people who crossed paths with this guy. So, you know, this could have actually been a lot worse than it was.
0: Well, it could have been worse. But you yeah. have, to, have, to, have to also look at this, that he drove past people and didn't shoot them. So he was—he right. wasn't killing everyone he saw, um, you know. He, he wasn't doing that, and it, yeah, it could have been worse, but it shouldn't have been this bad. I mean, you've got a situation exactly. where if you read the, you know, the ESDC reports today, the charges. Their communication system was so bad they had no way of identify him. They, they, they had no way to identify each other. I mean, it was the shoddiest of police work. And this is important because the RCMP bills itself and its supporters bill itself as the premier policing uh, operation in Canada. And what I've long argued is that they're not the premier policing organization in Canada. The, the municipal police forces are, are probably the best, the best trained and, and the most responsive. And the RCMP is this odd duck out there that we have to really be concerned about because in situations like this, it doesn't appear to have learned from its mistakes. And those mistakes have been pointed out over and over and over again. And too many in the public are going, you know, turning a blind eye and saying, well, we love the RCMP. We love our mounties. What is there to love? They're a paramilitary well, yeah. police force.
1: Exactly. And I mean, part of getting to the truth of what happened is to ensure that it doesn't happen again, to ensure that, that the necessary changes occur, to ensure that people are held accountable. But it feels, Paul, like neither of those things is likely to happen.
0: No, there's no instinct to hold them accountable. I mean, the RCMP has succeeded over the years avoiding um, controversy or, 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 or accountability because it's sort of it's a federal police force in provincial working in provincial territories. The provinces have no say over it, uh, its operations, etc. Even its personnel, the federal government turns a blind eye to most of the, that it does. And then when it gets into trouble, you have the RCMP Veterans Association, which seems like an arms-length sort of organization, but it's not. It basically goes out and lobbies for the RCMP. So you're, you know, you look at what's going on in Surrey now, uh, Surrey, B.C., where the RCMP uh, lost its contract to police Surrey, and Surrey set up its own municipal police force. There's signs all over, lobbying going on all over to return the RCMP. This is not the ordinary public doing this. And by and large, it's the RCMP Veterans Association and people associated with the force. You know that's not how a police force should operate in a democracy. Lobbying and 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 going after uh, you know rival police forces and trying to take away their work. It's it's just it's unseemly and it shouldn't be done.
1: Well, Paul, we'll leave it there. The book is called 22 Murders, Investigating the Massacres, Cover-Up, and Obstacles to Justice in Nova Scotia. An important work, obviously, on a hugely important issue. Paul, thanks so much for making some time for us here today. Really appreciate this.
0: Oh, anytime, Rob. Thank you.
1: All the best. Uh, That is uh, author, investigative journalist Paul Polango, his latest book, 22 Murders. the Many, many unanswered questions about this massacre uh, approaching the two-year anniversary. But yes, let's begin with yesterday's budget, which is being described as a modest budget, and that's a very subjective word. It does appear as though the the government is moving away from the idea of spending as stimulus, but this is still a, a spending budget. Maybe less spending than we've seen over the last couple of years, maybe less spending than we anticipated, but there is indeed more spending in this budget. $52 billion deficit, small by the standards of the last two years, but pretty big Uh, compared to pre-pandemic norms. So what is the government's focus here? What are they trying to do other than juggle certain political considerations? It's an interesting question. Our next guest has a great piece today, looking at how the government seems to be shifting from focusing on demand to supply, but without a real plan to make that work. Joining us for some thoughts on the budget is Andrew Coyne, columnist for The Globe and Mail, theglobeandmail.com. Andrew, good to have you with us here. Welcome to the program. Thanks, Rob. Uh, you know, there's there's a lot of commentary around this this budget and what it represents and, you know, even the idea that maybe this is modest or modest by more recent expectations. Where do you come down on that question, first of all? I'm a little mystified, I <laughs> have to
2: say, by the talk of it being a, a modest or prudent budget. I understand that it's less... Um, expansionary in its rhetoric uh, than previous budgets. Um, but as you mentioned off the top, when you actually add up what they're spending on, you know, just since the December update, so that's five months ago, the mm-hmm. whole spending track, the five-year spending track, has shifted up by about $11 billion per year, just in five months. Mm-hmm. And if you compare it to the, the 2021 budget 12 months ago, uh, it's up by more than $20 billion per year. So, you know, we, I don't think anybody thought the 2021 budget was particularly parsimonious. And we're now going to spend $20 billion a year more than that. So I think there's a fairly successful spin job going on here uh, right. that, uh, that uh, doesn't necessarily correspond entirely with reality.
1: So if this isn't spending in the name of stimulus, what is the purpose or the point of all of this additional spending?
2: Well, it's a good question. They certainly, yeah, they they didn't even mention stimulus except once in passing, and they were talking about monetary stimulus. So, and they pretty much, you know, have to put away that rhetoric since we now have, you know, record low unemployment, not just above our pre-pandemic, or better than our pre-pandemic performance, but you know, better than we've seen in decades. Um, And and remember, that was supposed to be the, the fiscal guardrail, as they called it, that signaled that they should ease off on the stimulus. So they eased off certainly on the rhetoric about stimulus, and yet we're spending more than we did when stimulus was in its heyday. So try to figure that out. The, the, what is, I think, significant and, and, and modestly encouraging in the budget, uh, and again, you sort of mentioned this off the top, is uh, um, they seem to understand uh, and they are willing to acknowledge, uh, quite frankly, uh, that we have a, a, a real problem with the rate of our economic growth, not in the short-term, get us out of a def- out of a recession type of way, but in terms of the mm-hmm. longer term. Uh, and, indeed, the budget includes this very damning graph from the OECD showing Canada, the projection for Canada over the next couple of decades, we're last in the OECD. And the reason that's particularly significant, not just because we'd like to have higher incomes, et cetera, but we have a rapidly aging population, the baby boomers retiring um, older people consume a lot more in the way of health care, and the only way, when you run, run the numbers on this, the only way we can possibly afford uh, these very high health care costs in the future is if the population is so much richer uh, that we can pay much higher tax revenues to pay for it without crippling my high tax rates. Uh, so it's a really strong imperative that people have been yelling at the government for some time to get serious about, and so it's at least progress that they have acknowledged that in, in a fairly serious way here. And part of their program, I think, is helpful towards that. So if you're trying to raise your productive capacity over time, there's two things you need to do about that. One is to have faster labor force growth, and the other is to make each of those workers more productive. And You put those two together, you get a lot more uh, output. Well, they're doing quite well on, on the labor force growth. Um, it, it's, a, it's a difficult challenge because the numbers, you know, just with the births and deaths and the aging of the population are pretty hard to overcome. But- um, they have taken what I think is quite a brave and, and, and admirable stance in terms of, of higher immigration levels, uh, not always popular in this country or anywhere else, and they seem to be sticking with that. Uh, and um, the measures in terms of uh, daycare, I don't particularly like the model they've chosen, but the idea of saying we need to help parents, and let's be frank, it's mostly we're talking about women, um, with the cost of daycare so that they can go to work, that makes sense. That's going to help raise your labor supply. So all that's, you know, mostly to the good. It's when they start talking about the other half about raising productivity, which is even more important than raising the number of workers, that it all gets pretty fuzzy and, frankly, pretty traditional capital L liberal approaches. You know, they're going to set up another um, government-sponsored venture capital fund or they're going to set up another innovation agency. And we've seen this movie a hundred times, and it, it, it was never a particularly satisfying movie. So I I think, uh, you know, give them part marks for for at least talking about the problem, but I I don't think they've really seized uh, the kinds of solutions that are going to be necessary.
1: Well, it's interesting, and I think you know economists have been talking about Canada's productivity problem for for a long time, well before the pandemic, yes. well before inflation became a, a real cause for concern. But it becomes more relevant now, I suppose, doesn't it? Especially if previous fiscal policy was juicing demand, that we definitely need to address the supply side, not just for the longer term challenges, but even in the short term, don't we?
2: That's right. And this is this has always been one of the criticisms of of demand management is. Yeah, you, know, you can you can lean on the demand levers all you like, but if if the economy can't respond with increased supply, then all you wind up getting is just higher prices. So you know we've we've gone through this cycle of the last couple of years. Now, what exactly kicked off the spiral of prices? I think is some dispute. I think there's a large case to be made that that was mostly things to do with supply chain disruptions and 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 now with the war in, Ru- in Russia, but that those one-offs can very quickly become entrenched as more permanent inflation if, A, uh, people start building that into their wage and price demands, if their expectations of inflation go up, and, B, if the central bank um, basically ratifies those expectations by supplying more money. So one part of reversing that circle is for the central bank to start slowing the pace of money growth, and they have, or they certainly have signaled they're going to, that they've They've stopped purchasing new, making new purchases of government bonds. Uh, so that's the, the bank seems to be doing uh, their side of it. But one contribution that the, that the government, the, even though the central bank and the government are kind of at arm's length from each other, one contribution the government can do, well, two things. One is it can get control of its own finances so as to add credibility to the bank's campaigns so people will believe the bank is going to do what it says it's going to do and won't be, be tempted to try to bail the government out if its finances get into trouble. So... Keeping control of your finances helps to buttress the credibility of what the bank's doing. But secondly, coming back to the supply side thing, is if, they, if, we, can, if we have a more um, nimble, limber, uh, uh, um, uh, adroit, uh, productive supply side of our economy, if, if, if we can ramp up our productivity and ramp up our growth – uh, then that takes some of the, the pressure off the demand supply side of things. That, that it makes it less likely that a given amount of demand is going to produce price increases as opposed to, to output increases. So anything you can do on the supply side is not just good in the long term. It's also helpful in the short term question of, of, of dealing with this uh, spike in inflation that we're dealing with.
1: But as you say, there's not much in this budget to, to get us to that point. And what you talk about in, in your piece, that it may be necessary, you know, major reform on, on the corporate tax side, major reform on the foreign investment side. There's probably yeah, not I mean, much the, political appetite for that.
2: Well, that's right. And, and we're going to have to have, uh, I, I hope we'll have at some point, uh, a, a big uh, discussion and, and argument about this as a country. Um, if we're going to get the kinds of very high rates of capital investment Again, there's rhetoric in the budget that, that acknowledges this: that the only way we're going to get this higher level of productivity is isn't, isn't by everybody working harder; it's by giving workers more capital, more tools and equipment to work with, more and better. And the only way we're going to get uh, that level of that very high level of investment uh, is both from domestic and from foreign sources. We're going to have to be, in my opinion, much more open uh, to foreign investment. We have to send every signal we can to international capital, which is roaming around the world looking for the best place to invest, we have to send every signal we can that this is a country that welcomes that investment. So part of that is uh, dismantling some of our uh, protective uh, um, um, barriers, particularly in sectors like airlines or finance or telecoms, which there's lots of reason to do otherwise, because that's also one of the best ways we can get more competition into these sectors, where we're notoriously high-priced in all three. so opening our being a more open foreign investment is one part of it. And the other, the most significant domestic barrier to capital formation is is tax rates, and there's still a lot we can do on that. And it has to be, in my opinion, it can't be incremental. It, as I say, the signaling effect, I think, is really important. We have to kind of shock people a little bit. Uh, and so I think we have to be a bit more willing to have these kinds of more radical discussions about what can we do to really reverse this decades-long problem we've had We've tried incremental approaches, and it really hasn't helped. Uh, So I think we have to start talking about larger, bigger things we we can attempt. And, you know, if the government isn't willing to have that discussion, I'm hoping some people on the opposition benches will. And and we'll start talking about this issue rather than, you know, vaccine mandates and and, and that sort of, you know, cultural stuff Mm -hmm. that I think has been a big dead end for the conservatives.
1: Indeed. Well, as mentioned, your latest, it's up at TheGlobeAndMail.com. Andrew, always a pleasure. Thanks for joining us here today.
2: Thanks very much, Rob. Good to talk with
1: you. All the best. Cheers. Andrew Coyne, columnist of The Globe and Mail, TheGlobeAndMail.com, an important piece today. The, the, the liberals are starting to maybe notice what the big challenge is, but they're not really addressing it. That we've got a growth and productivity problem, and it's even more acute now uh, as a result of inflation. You know, the point about too much money to chasing too few goods... Well, yes, we've got the, the demand side of it juiced, but we're not producing more goods, and that falls to growth and productivity. So that's kind of the missing piece in this budget. If We want to talk about big short-term and long-term challenges that Canada faces as a country. So what do Shoppers Drug Mart, Campbell's, A&W, Netflix have in common? Well, they're all big companies, well-known companies. Obviously, they do and produce very different things. Uh, But they're some of the companies that have the best reputation amongst Canadians. In fact, Shoppers Drug Mart is at the top of the list. The 2022 reputation study from Leger Marketing. And it looks at how Canadians feel about some of these big brands and big names and big companies that we deal with. You know, in many aspects, I suppose, of our day-to-day lives. And a company's reputation can be extremely valuable. I mean, trust is a part of that. Maybe there's more to a reputation than just whether you trust that brand. A company's recognized this is crucial. If you've got a bad reputation, it's really hard to overcome that. You know, if you're a retailer, even if you have a good deal on something. If people don't trust you, your reputation's not respected, ultimately it may not matter. So, yeah, it's a list you want to be on as a company, and we can go through the top 10. But what's also worth noting here is that even for the companies at the top of the list, overall, these scores have been going down. A few years ago, the companies at the top of the list had much higher scores. So even though we can still rank the companies with the best reputation, it's all relative. And maybe Canadians are losing overall trust when it comes to the corporate world. So joining us to talk about the uh, latest findings in this research and uh, what it all what it all says. I'm very pleased to welcome the program here this afternoon, Dave Schultz, who is the executive vice president uh, with Leger. Uh, Dave, great to have you with us here today. Welcome to the program. Well, th- thanks for having me here, Rob. Like I said, and I mean, I guess reputation. Go ahead. Sorry. No, I was going to say, and I got to say, your your description
3: of what reputation is and how important it is was was bang on. That is exactly what we tell people. Um, but you, all, you talked about if you have a bad reputation, and who's going to shop you shop there. We also like to look at the other side of it and the importance of having a good reputation, which means that right. if you have a crisis, people are more likely to forgive you, or they want to work there, or they want to shop there. You give a retail example. Uh, reputation is, is critical to uh, to retail organizations. To um, places like ANW, uh, but also just to corporations as a whole. It's, uh, it's something that people should be looking out for.
1: Right, and I wanted to unpack it a little bit further because I think some people might see trust and reputation as synonymous. I, I think maybe trust is, is one aspect of overall reputation. What else goes into that? So we look at six different pillars, and trust is something
3: that comes from having a good reputation. If you have a good reputation, people are more likely to trust you. They want to be close to you. Other factors that go into it is is our perception of your services or the products that you're giving, whether we think you're a good employer or not, um, what we think your impact on your community is. So whether that's at a business level or even just if you have a plant or shop or business within and within a city what is your impact there um well, your social responsibility programs uh the how transparent and honest you are all of that comes together to give you a corporate reputation
1: uh, so we got Shoppers Drug Murder at the top of the list, followed by Sony, Samsung, Canadian Tire Interact, Google, Campbell's, Microsoft, A&W, and Netflix. That's the top 10. You've seen some companies move up and down a little bit. Uh, Google, a few years ago, I think, was at the top of the list. They're, they're kind of in the middle of the pack in the top 10. A&W is a company that's jumped up in a big way into the yep. top 10. Um, what do you, what do you uh, account for in terms of what some of these changes have been over the last few years?
3: Well, and AM, W is an interesting one. Um, they have been doing something that Canadian Tire did in the early two thousands. They have a spokesperson that people can relate to, and they are using him in their online ads, across you know television ads across the board, and they're promoting a message of sustainability and healthy eating. And. And they're flooding us with advertisements. So if you think about mm-hmm. it, how much you're seeing from other QSRs, they are at the top of the, they've gotta be at the top of the media spend. So we can relate well to their spokesperson. We're feeling like we're in a, in a bit of a relationship with them. And whether you eat there or not, people are telling us they have that good perception. So they've been slowly coming up with the ranks over the last few years. And a lot of it is to do with the messaging that they're putting out, they've been putting out there. Um, Netflix is in the top 10, and that, we look at that as a bit of a uh, COVID situation. We've been much more right. familiar and friendly with our Netflix over the past two years, and, uh, and we've seen their growth substantially since then. And the same with Interac. Uh, Interac really changed the process and changed how we spent uh, our money and, and moved us away from cash more so than ever at the beginning of covid and they've been rewarded with a more positive reputation out of that as well
1: uh shoppers drug mart at the top of the list w- what do you attest that to so they've been in our top 10 for a
3: number of years and a lot of it goes to the experience within the store um, the the pot whether it's for beauty or whether it's for pharmaceuticals or just shopping they've also had over the last Seven to five, five to seven years, a tremendous growth in building brick and mortar stores. So mm. there are more shoppers around than ever than ever before, and we're interacting with them in a more positive way. Um, and in in the past year, they've also stepped up in terms of testing for COVID, uh, providing vaccines, as have other pharmacies. But because of their national representation, they they they're getting a better score here. You know, it's interesting. 80 percent of Canadians uh, have a good opinion about Shoppers Drug Mart, and only seven percent have a bad opinion.
0: Wow. And
3: that's a pretty strong. When 80 percent, you know, look around you, eight out of ten people, you know, will have a positive impression of them. That's why they're at the top. But you you touched on one thing: their score has dropped, and uh, their score has dropped over the last year by four point by five points. Um, so they're still at the top, but they still have work to do, um, because their good opinion is not as good as it once was.
1: Right. I was reading, like, for example, in, in 2013, Google was at the top of the list. Their score was a 91. This year, shoppers is at the top of the list. Their score is a 73. So even the, the top ranked companies are seeing lower scores. What, What does that tell you? A
3: couple of things are happening, and, and originally, when we we first recognized this year, we thought it was a COVID situation. So we went back ten right. years, and it's really it's not. It's something that's been coming on for the last little while. Organizations in Canada were not engaging with their stakeholders in the same way, and it's interesting if you look at uh, Edelman PR it does a trust barometer, and they've been showing a level of trust trust drop over the same time period. Uh, Proof PR does a uh, a trust barometer as well, and they've been showing a drop in trust over the last few years. Uh, And a lot of that is coming from this sense of, I'm not as engaged and as not as close to organizations as I once was. So bear with me here. We ask good opinion and bad opinion. And Mm -hmm. generally, if you know a company, you're able to tell us whether you think of, you know, 80% have a good opinion of shoppers, 7% have a bad opinion. When a company goes into crisis, and because we've built up this bank of goodwill, people tend to move, uh, I'm not immediately going to say, oh, that's a bad company now because they had a problem. I'm going to give them a little bit of benefit of the doubt. But I do want to see what their reaction is. So people to move to a third category, which is, I know the company, but not well enough to rate them. And that's what we're seeing. So Shoppers Drug Mart lost good opinion, didn't necessarily see a major increase in bad opinion. Those people went to, I know the company, but not well enough to rate them. So really, Canadians are taking a step back and saying, what are you all going to do for me next? How are you going to engage with me? With the number of communications out there, the number of of, uh, messages and information people are getting, not enough is cutting through all the mulch to get to Canadians Mm -hmm. and to maintain that relationship with them that's going to maintain a positive reputation so i I think we we put out a call we said there's a collective crisis of corporate reputation right now and organizations really need to be thinking about how they're going to communicate and how they're going to relate to their key stakeholder groups coming out of covid because everything's changed um, and we need to understand our consumers and our stakeholders much better or we're going to see a gradual erosion because over time, those people who are waiting to see what you're going to do next, if you don't do something that appeases them, they're going to move to a bad opinion.
1: I mean, is it, is it skepticism? Is it even at some level cynicism? What do you, how would you describe yeah, well, the changing attitudes? Uh,
3: you know, I, I think yes and yes. Um, yeah. The whole world of misinformation and disinformation is affecting things. So that's why we're seeing an increase in uh, honesty and transparency as being a stronger driver and reputation than we've ever seen before. It used to be if you're a, you're a retailer, like a shopper's drug bar, as long as you're delivering good quality products and good service, we have a generally positive feeling about you. Now we're starting to say, okay, are you saying things that are correct? Are you doing things that are right? So that softer message of doing the right thing is going to start coming through more and more. Um, and, but we're, We have to trust the messages we're getting. So that's why I think A&W has done so well, because people have related to their spokesperson. And we generally, you ask people, they trust that, uh, I can't remember his name, but the guy who does the rap. I have
1: no idea what his name is. I know exactly. Yeah, I don't even know if he
0: has a name, about. to be honest. Yeah, exactly. Um, but uh, they
3: trust him uh, with that. But I say Canadian Tire did that in the early 2000s with uh, their spokesperson named Dave. And I remember that because that's my name. Um, but uh, but they tr- people trusted Dave and how he did his, uh, when he talked about Canadian Tire. And they really grew in reputation then. I think organizations need to look for a way to get past that mistrust, skepticism that they're delivering a positive message and it's going to be about understanding how to relate to their consumers.
1: I do wonder, too. I mean, it feels like, you know, the polarization we see in, in society, That a lot of it's political. And we often see these controversies where, you know, companies are supporting a certain cause and people get mad or companies don't support a certain cause and people get mad or, uh, you know, all, all, you know, companies can find themselves entwined in some of these political controversies. And then that gets associated with their brand. I mean, I, I can't really think of examples when we look at the top 10 here, but th- does that factor in at some level, do you think?
3: Well, and it does, and these companies are in the top ten because they've been able to avoid that.
1: Yeah.
3: Um, you know, you look at—I'm going to use an American example. You look at uh, the the pillow company, uh, mm-hmm. my mm-hmm. that uh, my pillow. That yes. Trump's, yeah, my pillow. Yeah. And uh, there are people that will never, you know, that, that you get a disparity of response there, strongly in terms of people disliking that company because of the political stance it put forward. On the other end, you get people. Who, who love that company because of what Mike Lindell has been doing, and they, they feel it's a positive thing. So you do get that disparity of response. One of the, one of the things that's interesting, there's another study that we were involved with uh, in the U.S., didn't do ourselves, but through an association on the end, they did. And they talked to people about disinformation. And depending on which side of the political spectrum you were on, um, wearing masks was seen as disinformation, Or not wearing masks was seen as disinformation (laughs) as to the proper step forward. So that politicization, and companies have to be really careful when they do that. Um, Ben and Jerry's took a really strong stand uh, during uh, when when Black Lives Matter uh, Mm -hmm. was getting a, a lot of media attention a few years ago. And they saw their reputation increase because of that. But among some political circles, it dropped. So it's, uh, right. it, it's a, you've got to be careful when you go into that route. And none of these companies in the top 10 have really put themselves out there. And that's probably why they're there in Canada.
1: Yeah, yeah maybe a good lesson. Uh, anyway, much more in the reputation study, leger360.com. Dave, thanks so much for joining us here today. Appreciate it.
3: You're welcome. Thank you.
1: All the best. Uh, that is David Schultz, Executive Vice President with Leger. Uh, Lager360.com is their website and read more about the 2022 reputation study. So the top 10 most reputable companies in Canada, the ones that have the best reputation. Subjective, obviously, uh, but do you agree with any of this? So Shoppers Drug Mart, first place, followed by Sony, Samsung, Canadian Tire, Interact, Google, Campbell's. Which is interesting. I mean, you see the Campbell's logo. You get all the warm feelings, right? The chicken noodle soup uh, when, you, when you're when you sick, all of that. I guess people still love soup. Does Campbell's do anything else? I don't know. Anyway, uh, so Campbell's uh, at seven and then Microsoft, A&W, Netflix. Honestly, I, I kind of find the A&W guy a little annoying, if I'm being honest, but uh, clearly it's it's working for them.